Hello and welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis. I'm here with my brother, Jeremy Sartori. It is a Brother, Brother podcast. And today we are talking about the collective mind-blowing experience we've had, we've had and shared watching Can't Get You Out of My Head, the six-part, uh, close to eight-hour documentary on YouTube released uh, in February by Adam Curtis. Jer, I, I was going to sort of write up notes and, and an outline, and then I was like, let's just, you know, let's just freeform it because uh, I don't really know how to describe it or where to sink my teeth into it or a lot of way, in a lot of ways I don't really know how to talk about it, which is why we're talking about it. <laughs> yeah, I think um, Adam Curtis describes his work as an emotional document, docu- <laughs> documentary. And uh, I think that kind of sums it up with your uh, inability to sort of explain it because it, it does really kind of uh, drum up and bring up kind of a lot of emotions through a collage of imagery, music, and a through line, you know, a through line narrated by Adam Curtis himself. Um, I think you stumbled upon this uh, listening to a pod that Chuck Klosterman was on. Um, the Is it the big reel or the real picture? Big, Sorry, Big picture. Big picture, yep, on Ringer, right? And so, um, and, and then had a long flight to L.A. where you... Uh, where you kind of dove in and uh, and jumped into it and then shot it to me and, and within you know the first ten minutes of the or maybe twenty minutes or whatever because you seem to kind of lose time as you're watching this um, right around the time song for Zula comes on by Phosphorescent I just was I was in you know and I was in for the ride um, I, I managed to to fit an eight hour documentary and probably uh, a few nights viewing and. Um, yeah, it's a, it's an incredible piece of work. I think um, I don't know a ton about Adam Curtis. I think you you've seen some of his previous work, and and uh, I don't believe there was a lot of fanfare around this. There seems to be more now, and I know you and I have been uh, screaming through mountaintops. Watch this damn thing; it's great. Yeah, watch this damn thing; it's great. Is the uh, is the takeaway from from this podcast? Um, it's it's weird because I called you and I couldn't explain it, and um, it's kind of, you know, it's how I'm, it's really kind of how I'm trying to proselytize. I'm trying, I'm just saying, watch it um, and thank me after. But, you know, part of the reason that it was so uh, appealing and and to say that I, I know Adam Curtis's work is, is not, you know, I mean, it's, I do uh, obviously more now than I did two weeks ago, but two weeks ago I had never heard of him. Um, he is a lifelong uh, BBC documentarian, uh, which means, you know, in the 80s and 90s, he's made some, you know, pretty run-of-the-mill, networky kind of uh, docs on business and culture. And then in the early 90s, he started making his own work, but had access to the entire BBC um, video library and um, sort of, you know, expressed himself through this... Um, uh, by making these um, kind of nonlinear collage type of, of documentaries, which he refers to as emotional histories. And in this one, he tackles, I mean, no lesser subjects than colonialism, revolution, um, 
mass, uh, uh, what, what would you call it? Mass sedation? Um, yeah, mass sedation. I think, um, you know, kind of a, a loss of purpose, meaning, and the rise of technology, right? <laughs> in, indiv- individualism versus yeah. uh, uh, community. And um, it's, uh, um, it's, it's, it's heavy stuff, but it's it's delivered in such a way, and and not least of which, and I think you nailed it when you said the as soon as song for Zola Zula uh, queued up, um, you were in, and it it is delivered with again the aid of this massive BBC video archive, which you know, if I'm not mistaken, is the largest in the world. I mean, they've been in business since television was invented. So you're seeing and you're seeing some footage that's never been seen before. Um, as I read more about Adam Curtis, you know, I'm finding out I was, re, uh, you know, that some of this video from China and Russia has literally never seen the light of day before. So that's pretty incredible. And but he, you know, he soundtracks this as uh, Sean Fennessy on the Big Picture said. He soundtracks this like a 50-year-old guy who reads Pitchfork. And as a 50-year-old guy who reads Pitchfork, um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's exactly, all... Yeah. It's it's a lot of, you know, and some great stuff. I mean, it's a lot of ambient stuff, a lot of uh, Stars of the Lid and um, uh, Nine Inch Nails and... Aphex Twin. Aphex um, Twin. But then some, some great, you know, pop music... Drops like phosphorescent. Um, you know, I was taken back to my junior or my you know middle school years with the specials "Do Nothing," which is the first uh, pop song that's that's dropped in there almost in its entirety. Uh, I forgot how great of a song that was too. But it's you know there's and later I mean you <clears throat> you you described the the um, I was going to actually try and. Uh, thread this all together by saying my wife watches The Crown all the time and um, Princess Diana's favorite song was Lady in Red by Krista Berg which was also in the running for Brother Brother Brother's 50 worst songs of all time (laughs) (laughs) and uh, is represented here and you can kind of describe the yeah I mean you get a you know basically what Curtis does is he kind of takes figures, revolutionary figures, whether it's uh, um, Michael DeFrantis, uh, Michael X, uh, you know, sort of a black revolutionary in, in England from Trinidad who who'd migrated back, or uh, Mao Zedong's wife, and, you know, kind of talks about their power struggles, but uh, at one point, you know, gets into all the way, and it takes you to current day, and by the time you're in, in episode six, and, you know, you have uh, the Al-Qaeda sort of uh, backdrop and I, because there's so many characters in there, I forget who the centerpiece of that part is, uh, but it was, um, it was one of the Al Qaeda operatives. Yeah. One of the Al Qaeda operatives was involved was in tortured and exactly. And so sorry for not being as, uh, not having notes as Wynn said, cause it's really hard to kind of gather all this information in one place, but you know, it just kind of takes sort of like this old, power stroke or this new kind of movement for change in the face of kind of an old power struggle and an old power and how these people kind of revert back to the safety and the kind of um, comfort of old power. And, and in this particular one, it was a, you know, 
a, a sort of young Arab freedom fighter who ends up, you know, losing himself in pop music. So the the song Lady in Red is is played while you're watching, you know, ISIS and Al-Qaeda training videos, you know, and it's just such a, a strange juxtaposition of of, mu- of pop music and modern music with, you know, sort of modern freedom fighters from trying to kind of bring back an old, old world mentality. And, and uh, it's just really kind of jarring and, and shocking, um, you know, songs like Lula from uh, Bright Eyes, you know, while uh, a Chinese factory is creating speaking baby dolls, you know, <laughs> and um, I thought one of the, the really cool ones was the Ravinettes, um, is it Revolt? And uh, what the name of that song, yeah, I think it's Recharge and Revolt just a ripping guitar riff, you know, as, um, you know, uh, mama fighters and, and, you know, um, the Congo are being chased down by Land Rovers and British soldiers. It's, yeah. That it's was very, that was really heavy. Yeah. There, there's scenes in this and, you know, I guess, uh, <laughs> warning for those who have sensitive, uh, you are sensitive to violence and, uh, you know, real imagery. I would say there, there's a lot of it in this, um, done very tastefully and, and well as, as tastefully as you can do. But, but I think kind of really drives home the point and, and you have scenes and, and clips and collages where you're like, oh, I don't want to see how this one ends. You know, it's, yeah. um, I mean, the, it's really, the, that, that scene in particular, which I rewatched last night, um, you know, you, you think that you see these, these Land Rovers in Africa and they're, there's, I, I don't know whether they're... Looks like elk you know, or, yes. And polis or, or yeah. you know, or, um, you know, antelopes or whatever. But you see them, like, running these down and you realize that right behind them are a bunch of Africans, that are, you know, a couple of Africans. And it's really, they're, these Land Rovers are chasing humans, hunting humans, essentially. And um, it's uh, it's powerful, extremely powerful. Um, that said, you know, I think it is, uh, you know, in the end, I, you know, the takeaway, I think in the, in the Mac, you know, the sort of, um, macro sense is that people are always chasing a past, uh, mythology of the past that doesn't really exist. Right. That's uh, been in some ways created or made up to kind of secure that. And it really centers around, I think, too. In a, in a kind of scary sense, it, it's, I'd say it's a perfect film for the last the year we lived through, obviously influenced by that quite a bit. And I think, Curtis, there's a good article in The New Yorker for anyone who's interested by, um, uh, sorry, give me one second, by Sam Knight, sorry, that was written in January. Um, and you can you can look it up online or if you, if you subscribe to The New Yorker. And uh, I think very well done and kind of follows Curtis's kind of theory behind the thing. And, and a lot of it was obviously brought up by the rise of Trump and Brexit in England, uh, Curtis being British. And, you know, I think one thing that we sort of all were kind of, or not all of us, but a lot of us were, were sort of wondering was like, what's going on here? Like, why, you know, why are we not understanding this kind of movement or this shift? And, and it kind of took, I think, a lot of people for, by surprise and I think he really kind of starts to look at like how that developed through the declines of, you know, imperialism, uh, you know, the colonialism of England and then the kind of rise of America and the sort of, uh, you know, just these sort of moments in time, whether it's, 
you know, the currency, you know, the gold standard going away under Nixon or, um, you know, and I'm leaning a little bit on the American side just because I know that history a little better, you know, Clinton allowing kind of big banks to sort of take over, um, you know, world economies and globalization. And, and, you know, these movements start off with a good cause of power trying to kind of control and, you know, calm a, a chaotic world. And, you know, whether it was England kind of trying to shape shift and, and mold the colonies or America or China, you know, the people and sort of centers around mainly, I'd say, those three mega powers. Um, there are others thrown in, but those seem to be obviously the, the, the dominant in Russia, the dominant world powers. Um, and you get this kind of like, you know, can, trying to control chaos and at the same time causing a new form of chaos. It almost is like yeah. when you squeeze something too tight and it squirts out the other, the end that it's not supposed to or something, you know? Um, well, I think, and, I think too, it's, you know, it's this fear of it's, it's this rapid progress, um, you know, met with the fear of rapid progress that's driving us all into the, you know, to reach for the past. Yeah. Yeah. And as I, good as it's being portrayed. And I think some of the most effective pieces are, you know, where he has BBC clips of, of working class or, or middle class. I get very confused with the class system in England, to be honest. You probably know better than I do. But um, even in the uh, Sam Knight article, I thought it was interesting how Adam Curtis does not like to be called an artist because that makes him an, an, a, uh, an intellectual and he's affiliated you know, when, with the middle class. Way back when, when Christian and I did the, um, you know, did the live uh, show at, at Port Elliot, there was, you know, the uh, Jeff um, Jeff Dyer and Richard Mason had a argument about in, about intellectuals uh, and should intellectuals run things, and Richard was very keen on having you know the smartest people run things, and, right. and Jeff was you know a very um, you know uh, counter you know his opinion ran very counter to that, which was. Um, basically, you know, then you're self-appointed and you're, yep. you know, it's not a democracy. Which I think definitely, now that you say that, and, and I think in, in England, you know, in America, there's a, a very strong class system that we sort of ignore or like to believe doesn't exist. Everybody's middle class, right? Everybody's striving to be middle class, um, but really isn't or wants to be rich, you know? And, um, and then I think, uh, you know, in England where you have it a little more defined, I think that kind of is, if there's any slant to this in Curtis's work here is, is that, right? Is that there's sort of this takeover of, of you know, very intelligent technocratic kind of um, control in a sense that isn't meant to be controlling. It's, it's done with good intent and then backfires to some degree, um, and I think a lot of that is, is kind of really detailed throughout the, the Russian revolution or the fall of communism part, which I thought was extremely interesting. The lack of, of information and knowledge that, you know, these intelligence agencies in, in England and in America New kind of collected and, yeah. and how naive a lot of it was. And even all the way up to George W. Bush and, and, and the kind of new world, um, you know, kind of new world order and, you know, the allow the sort of blind... Um, economic gains of opening up China without sort of seeing some of the mistrust and, and, um, mm -hmm. and kind of, uh, you know, uh, anti-democracy sentiment that leadership had, you know, not the people, but the leadership had. And, and, and it's, it's a, just a, yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've, like I, we were saying earlier, I've texted it to some of my good friends around the country here and, and just, I'm like, this is brilliant. Watch it. You know, like it's, it's, 
I haven't seen anything that's really kind of blown me away like this in a long time. I was saying to win just off the cuff, you know, there's times in my life where it's like, oh my God, hearing Pixie Surfer Rosa or reading uh, Catcher in the Rye or, you know, um, you know, being a young middle schooler and, and, you know, watching The Graduate for the first time or something, just things that like really shook my kind of uh, mm-hmm. sense of security in a good way um, and sense of the world that I, I lived in, but I could also relate to. And I think that this is one of those, I mean, I, I don't think I'm overplaying my hand here. I think this is one of those docs. Yeah. I think too, like, um, they're, you know, going back and, and watching his earlier work, there are, you know, uh, some repetitive elements and, uh, you know, people make fun of, of his work a little bit because it's, you know, there's sort of a checklist of things that he questions or, or, you know, there's uh, some footage that he repeats, you know, over over and over. But, you know, so be it. I still think, um, you know, it, it, you can critique anything. I think it's, the you know, one of the best eight hours I've spent watching television Yeah, ever. And, and I mean, um, there, especially with documentaries, I think in general, he has a, a message and a point. And, and that's why I was saying earlier, it's a little, it's interesting to kind of read a little bit more about him and his sort of version to being an intellectual or even called an artist, which he, you know, by all accounts, you can certainly, <laughs> and then the writer goes on to talk about how he, you know, is in a friend's gallery loft in Soho, you know, um, when he was editing this, not that, you know, call it what it is, but yeah, he's an artist, right? And so, but there is kind of an aversion to that. And I think it was also interesting that he, you know, kind of stumbled upon this by reading the Jim Garrison, the, the New Orleans district attorney who, who really pioneered the yeah. Kennedy assassination conspiracy um, memo and uh, is it time and uh, uh, prop, uh, am I saying that right? Propiquity, yeah, sorry, factors in, in fi- phase one, which talks about just a series of connections that there's this kind of mystery and there has to be these kind of like you have to look for the connections because there's obviously something hidden. Mm-hmm. And I thought, too, one of the, you know, in the age of kind of QAnon, and there's a QAnon documentary on HBO, which I believe you watched. Yeah, that's good. Um, and these are things that, you know, perplex some of us or a lot of us, although, like, I, I do understand um, conspiracy theories and, and how they get kind of spread. But I thought one of the most uh, enlightening piece of this for me was the rise of kind of algorithms and, you know, what today is social media and for good or bad, you know, do what you want with that. But and how um, conspiracy theories got kind of mixed up with real events. Right. So the CIA drugging people with LSD and really trying to do mind experiments to see if you could erase someone's memory and then bring it back. But they found out, Oh, whoops, you can't bring it back. You know, <laughs> like, sorry, <laughs> um, we can erase it. And which is real, you know, that happened. And then with the Kennedy, you know, assassination, which, you know, sorry, listeners, if, if you believe in the, you know, multiple conspiracy, conspiracy theories out there, there really has been no evidence that really showed much more than what, what happened. Right. Or even, even, you know, larger, uh, kind of conspiracies where, where are even more, you know, abstract sort of the QAnon things of today where it's just like, there's just really nothing that you can point to that really is going to, well, you, you know, you, give you the evidence that says this is happening, which is what makes it, you know, kind of, you know, keep going. Again, in the, in the wide shot, if you pull back, it's, you know, the, it's the idea that, um, you know, if something's inexplicable, you assign meaning to it, which means that, you know, it can't just be, 
random. It has to have been carefully plotted. Right. And, you know, it, it's funny. Um, he goes back, and if, if his research is correct, which I, you know, hope it is, um, you know, he talks about those guys that, that initially wrote the letter to Playboy that, that started the Illuminati um, right. Yes. Conspiracy theory because they wanted to experiment themselves with how an absurd idea could be adopted. So they they planted this story about the Illuminati, which was a um, you know 18th century uh, movement in Austria Hungary, I believe, um, and uh, or Bavaria maybe, and you know they're just making shit up and throwing it at the wall and. Somehow it gets discovered and people take it very seriously. And thus you have, you know, the, uh, you know, nine guys living in a, in a bunker changing the weather. Um, otherwise known as the Illuminati. And, yeah. And I think too, how those same guys who started it as a joke because they thought conspiracy theories were the most ridiculous thing in, in, on the planet. And that if people just kind of saw how ridiculous they were, that it would be, um, you know, kind of divulged and, and people would reject them, it, it, it backfired. And then by the end, they're completely obsessed with, you know, the guy who wrote the letter was uh, a compatriot. Had written a book about Lee Harvey Oswald. <laughs> right, exactly. That's what I mean. So, I mean, there's like, you know, there's these kind of these connections that become something. And I'd say that the two main kind of characters through lines are, are um, Zhang, how do you say her name? Is it Zhang Quing? Yeah, I was going to avoid. I, I hate yeah. to assign somebody a title <laughs> and a name, but it's I have difficulty with the name. I'm with you. I have difficulty pronouncing it too. Uh, Michael X and and you know the Caribbean migrant in West London who who gangster you know really kind of comes up right as a gangster and then a, and then a revolutionary and then you know even delves into kind of Tupac Shakur and um, you get Arthur and, Sackler along the way. You get. Um, you yeah, know, you get innumerable people along the way that that sort of contribute to this wild ride. And I think the the through line though is this sort of you know actual desire to make change accompanied with coming up against old powers that are sort of institutionalized and a disenchantment or a loss of way, you know, and um and like China, it ends up being, you know, kind of a, a revenge play and a, you know, sort of individualism, even though there's a collective kind of mission with Michael X, it, it becomes kind of a, you know, paranoia and, and mistrust and, and kind of criminal activity. And, and, you know, Tupac gets kind of swept up in the, in the, own, the inability in the to myth making. Right. And the, yeah, inability to kind of really cause true change and, and kind of, you know, become celebrity and, and things like that. And, and so... I think, too, there's something that I kind of left with, which was, you know, by not explaining the explainable, which I think governments tend to shy away from, because it's, 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 it seems to be u- universal to some degree, and I think somewhat of a power struggle, and not to turn this into a philosophy, you know, pod, you have these kind of groups of power that make really bad decisions <laughs> that affect a lot of people. Yeah, it's like well-intentioned... Um, uh... Yeah, some of it for sure. And, and, you know, instead of just being like, ah, 
like well-intentioned mistakes and let's change that. It's a, it's an inability to really kind of look at their yourself and to move forward, you know, yeah, it's doubling, learn from the mistakes. Doubling the down on mistakes and making them again. It's, it's, uh, you know, as, as they so eloquently put it, or, uh, as, uh, our friend, the, uh, from new Orleans, so eloquently put it, look for the patterns. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I think in general, you know, there was, I think, very few moments in this doc where I was like, okay, I'm watching eight hours of documentary. It was, um, no, I think getting... every episode stands kind of on its own to some degree. You can definitely, I think, it, you know, you have to kind of watch it in, in, in order just to understand the characters, but, or the people that they focus on. Um, but it's, it's definitely, you know, they sort of stand alone as many movies, didn't you think? Yeah, oh, I'd say, and, and just to give you a, a, a tease, um, <clears throat> the first episode's called Blood on Wolf Mountain. Second episode's called Shooting and Fucking Are the Same Thing. So, um, you know, there is there are there are elements of, of wry humor, um, you know, disper- and, you know, dispersed throughout. There's um, se- seemingly an obsession with uh, footage of, of men dancing. Uh, and choreographed yes. uh, folk dancing, and, uh, <laughs> and um, you know, just a lot of there's a there. Don't get you know, don't get comfortable on one storyline because this thing jumps around like nobody's business, and it it sort of anytime you you sort of hit an emotional peak, it it just jumps somewhere else and and takes you to another one. I think it's a, um, you know. Suffice to say that obviously we're both really impressed and 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 love this piece of work. Well, there's one jump in particular, and, and there's a lot of them, but I think it might have been a Gulf War protest, and that clicks right into almost the screen stops, and you go right to like 1968 mm. Vietnam, you know, and it's yeah. or, or it's just kind of the way it jumps around. So yeah, you're you're you know, I would say primarily you go back in history to some of the, the people that maybe develop some of the theories that are, are, you know, kind of prevalent in society today. And then all the way to, you know, 2021, where, you know, current day um, events like coronavirus are happening and all in the span of, of this documentary and in sometimes in the span of, of these single kind of episodes. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, Curtis said something in the New Yorker article that was interesting to me. And and I thought kind of um, the reason he calls it sort of emotional um, history History. is because you end up feeling a sense of comfort, I think, um, with the imagery. And even though the images are kind of either random sometimes or even somewhat hallucinatory, you know, like kind of trippy at times and, you know, can kind of almost make you feel like you're in a a time warp. Perpetual Um, dog thing was pretty trippy i was glad it wasn't yeah that was very trippy yeah the google piece um and you know kind of follows to modern psychology and the kind of study of the mind and it's this kind of quest to control um or to to harness really i think more than control because i don't think at the time anyone's setting out to control or possibly some are but um but yeah you you end up kind of also feeling like weirdly comforting i think the pop music really helps that too yeah you know whether it's uh (laughs) Lady in Red, which uh, normally would make me want to, you know, swerve off the road trying to change the channel, um, or you know, Bright Eyes, you know, as we mentioned, or phosphorescent specials for, you know, and and these kind of really interesting, you know, kind of 
uh, drops that kind of bring you back or bring you into this this kind of music video world in a, in a sense. It's um, sorry, I'm probably just rambling here at this point, but it's I think a must watch. I mean, I think it's yeah. probably the best thing I've seen in 2021 for sure. Yeah, that I was gonna say just to get specific for a second, the footage of the Red Guard. Um, in 1966 in Tiananmen Square is something I've never seen before. I don't believe it's ever been seen before. I'm not 100% sure. Nope. But it is breathtaking. And just that whole notion of, of you know, Mao's revolution and, and getting the youth, you know, uh, combing the country to, to put, you know, to galvanize the youth and then the having demons. Them, yeah, and then having them set out on you know, the entrenched power and ultimately taking down the gang of four, which included Mao's wife. Um, it was just, you know, it's just weird elliptical storytelling, but it, 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 you know, really resonant. Well, and I think as two Americans, um, you know, who kind of, we have a bad, you know, um, history of, of really just not studying other countries' histories. And, uh, you know, it's something that, like I said, I you know the the American parts of the duck were a lot of it was actually quite revealing and, and interesting, but some of that part I just was more comfortable with or knew, you know, having been studied history in the U.S. Um, but yeah, the the pieces that you're referring to, the Mao Revolution, I, you know, I, I knew the Cultural Revolution, which I kind of understood and knew in pieces, but didn't really quite know some of the details that are revealed, you know, sort of the shutting down of schools and, you know, I mean, what a, what a concept in, in the sense, like let the kids run wild and, and, you know, give them power. And, uh, and it was, it was kind of intense and, and nuts. And even, you know, the rise of a Putin in Russia where you kind of find this, this figure who believes in nothing really, you know, <laughs> and, and has no plan except for just power, you know, that's sort of what you end up with after, you know, a really botched, um, Western kind of, you know, uh, propping up and, and coup of, of Boris Yeltsin, who was just a buffoon, you know, and, and also had no power and, and, you know, and was just a drunk really in the end and, um, just some miscalculations and mismanagement. And I think too, just the, the human nature of really clinging on to something that's going to kind of change everything, whether it's, you know, democracy and capitalism, free markets, you know, versus, um, you know, colonialism and, and, you know, old British men talking about like having to talk to, uh, you know, get their, their sort of welfare checks from, from, uh, West Indies. Yeah, no, exactly. East Indians. Sikhs. Yeah. Sorry. Sikhs. Yep. And who, you know, they had, uh, you know, trained and been there and got along well while they were in India. That was a great clip. And it's just, uh, it was amazing. Yeah. As a guy's washing his dishes, you know, in, in his kitchen. Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, you, you, you start to kind of, just see some of it even in your own thinking, just the way that you've kind of been brought up to kind of feel comfortable with some of the old ways yeah. of thinking, you know, or the old old and the, thoughts and, and things yeah. like that. And, and how most history is, is sort of presented as good versus evil when it's really, right. been, you know, it's really far more nebulous. Yes. And there's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of counter, uh, intuitive and counter actions on all, all sides. There isn't this kind I of mean, like, uh, for the mighty good. I spoke to a friend of mine recently who I will not name. Um, and he said, you know, uh, he said he had learned about the Tulsa 
massacre, you know, the Tulsa race uh, riots, as it's frequently referred to, but Tulsa massacre um, from the Watchmen. And, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's really, that's actually a pretty good point because I actually ended up taking a, uh, like a black history class when I was in college and that's where I learned about it, but I'd never learned about it prior. Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's, it's a lot about one of the, one of the things that goes along with, you know, sort of the idea of whitewashing of history and it's, it's, you know, sort of, um, it's shown here. It's not explicitly remarked upon, but I don't know if you've noticed, but BBC, you know, American news is very, um, shy, on and that this goes back to Vietnam about showing any um, atrocity carnage, yeah, uh, especially in war. And the BBC is less inclined to do that. So there's a lot more. You know, when they when they show war footage, they show carnage and and um, the actual results of of bombings and shootings and such. And uh, I just think that's a it's a very American um, uh, sort of decision, and I think it's sort of um, part and parcel with some of our um, uh, less enlightened traits to, um, if you ignore it, it goes away kind of thing. And uh, I, th- I just thought, you know, that just as a visual uh, piece, this is, this is much more uh, graphic. No, definitely. And I think, too, where you and Christian probably have a little more sense of, of some of the British colonial history, I have been more aware of it after reading Say Nothing, um, the uh, Northern Ireland struggle book about the Northern Ireland, and then even a bit about in Shuggy Bane, which we all just read, the uh, novel, and, you know, just sort of the, the welfare state and, and kind of poorness. But, you know, it really kind of, ta- I mean, just really kind of delves into that. And I think the Brits, to some degree, have... Yeah, expose that a little bit more than than we have some of our own, you know, the American exceptionalism or whatever you want to call it. I will say, too, though, he really doesn't leave any kind of, um, you know, stone unturned in the sense that even the effects of some of that imagery that you're discussing then causes kind of this same power class to have guilt and, you know, the same people who would never claim racism, you know, sort of. Oh, you know, it just sort of goes into that kind of elite elitism, you know, do-gooderism and to some degree with, you know, still the old mentality of like not in my neighborhood, though, you know, um, and it's, it's well, there's, really a, there's also, you know, there's also no such thing. I mean, I say this with a, a degree of certainty. There's no such thing as a, as a British person who's not obsessed with class. Right. Yep. And that that really gets um, kind of explained here to those of you who aren't as familiar and and myself being one of them. Um, And then, you know, the other piece, sorry, (laughs) honestly, I could probably like talk about this thing for hours. Eight and and a half hours. Yeah. Yeah. And and, uh, still nobody would know what the hell we're talking about. But, um, but the other piece too, is just the deep seated American paranoia, which I found very interesting and very true um, in kind of looking at our own history. Just, you know, obviously we were, you know, America was founded on, persecution religious persecution and and then you know it didn't go into the kind of the native american you know atrocities but you know there is this kind of individual paranoia of power here and always has been 
Um, and I think it really does play out, you know, we're seeing it certainly today and, and, uh, but throughout history really. And, uh, I, I thought that was one of the things that he kind of did really good job, whether you agree or disagree in kind of getting to the root cause of, of these cultures kind of, um, I guess, you know, need to hold on to, to those false stories, like, like you were mentioning. So, or the, the well, kind of rewritten history. My assertion, and we'll end on this, but my assertion's always been that this country was founded by people who were crazy enough to get in a boat and leave <laughs> civilization for the unknown. And this country's class system is predicated on how closely related you are to those crazy people. So, right. <laughs> so if that, that makes note. any sense at all. <laughs> well, hopefully we uh, didn't dissuade anyone from from watching. Can't get you out of my, or your uh, can't get you out of my head, um, Adam it, Curtis. BBC, it's also free on available. YouTube. Yeah, I was gonna say YouTube is is where it, it, you can find it, or if you have a, a link to BBC streaming. But um, I watched the whole thing on on YouTube. Uh, loved well, and it. That is a, loved it. That is a um, you know that is. Uh, um, very intentional on Adam Curtis's part to make this free and available to the entire world. So I think that's kind of cool. And it's, uh, it's well worth it. So hopefully, um, like I said, we didn't confuse you and hopefully you want to watch it cause we, we think it's amazing. And, uh, you want to go out on uh, a tune from the, from the doc? Sure. How about um, do nothing by the specials? I was going to say, go for it. All right. Sounds good. Thanks Damien. We'll be back to talk about some new records. back to the brother 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 pod and uh Wyndham and i are talking today we just wrapped up talking about um the excellent documentary series can't get you out of my head by um adam curtis bbc available on youtube and uh this isn't an official what are you listening to because we haven't quite gotten there yet but we we, we should do one probably soon based on our quarterly report on music but we're going to just throw out a couple albums that we do dig and that will probably be uh you know, mentioned throughout the year and hopefully end up on some best of lists towards the end of the year. So when, um, throw, uh, what, what's cool and what's new in 2021 that you've been digging? Well, I have been, um, I have been immersed in watching, uh, can't get you out of my head multiple times. So, um, I have not been as, um, clued in, in the music front, but, this week, um, God's P at State's End um, was released by Godspeed You Black Emperor, a band that I embarrassingly, um, and I should lose my any hipster credential I might have accrued over the course of the past 30 years, um, is a band that I only just recently started listening to at length. And the new album is more great stuff. It is a, 
you know, for those, for the uninitiated, of which I'm sure there are almost none of our listeners, but it's a, um, it's a collective from Montreal, Canada, that does largely instrumental um, music, but that sort of, you know, builds and builds and builds and crescendos. It's almost symphonic in its nature, but it's guitar-based and, and um, it's great stuff, especially if you... It's a, it's my new writing album, actually. Um, uh, and uh, it, it's sort of in keeping. There's not, you know, no, no uh, significant U-turns on, um, from the rest of their catalog, but to say that it's more of the same is to... Uh, is to give it extremely high praise. So, Godspeed, you Black Emperor, and the new album is called God's P. <laughs> at God, what? Sorry. God, God's P at State's End. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, what are you listening to? So, um, yeah, I have not I have not tuned into that one. I will. Um, I do like that as background music as well. Um, and again, that's, you know, an un- unnecessary kind of, uh, not meant to be a slight. It's actually a, a compliment. Um, I have a three albums I'm just going to throw out there. Um, the first one is by, uh, Tamara Lindman's new, uh, album under the, the moniker Weather Station, the Weather Station, uh, Canadian singer songwriter who, you know, I think has, has shown some flourishes of, of kind of bigger band style albums, but on her new release, um, ignorance, um, which actually uh, Pitchfork gave a nine point so that's a that's a hard mark to get from those guys. Um, it's uh, it's a big record, you know, with a lot of um, you know large kind of breezy uh, instrumentation, you know, horns and and um, yeah, like full it. band, and yeah, it, it's a it's a really kind of cool, smooth record. She's a really good songwriter, and I think in the past that was you know more of the focal point. And, you know, with this album, you're, you're kind of getting the, the excellent songwriting with uh, full band sound. The, the opener really almost sounds kind of like, you know, 80s kind of like, uh, you know, Sade-ish kind of, you know, not in the soul sense, but in, in the just sound. And slick I think, production, yeah. Yeah, almost, you know... not. It reminds me a little bit of the, the um, Perfume Genius album in the sense that, like, the music in this really kind of does elevate the album quite a bit. Um, she's got some really great you know, players. Funny. I've never, we've never had the discussion, but Sade perfume genius uh, comparison is not crazy. No. Yeah. I think you're right. And I think the, her band famously kind of was their own entity Sweetback, who, you know, is pretty famous in that, that world of smooth operators. <laughs> instruments. But, um, but yeah, I think it's a great record. I haven't, you know, to be 100% honest, I just started kind of giving it a spin, but I, I know that it's one that's going to continuously kind of be listened to here. And it, it, it's a really good record. I think you'll enjoy it a lot. I think um, it's one that you can kind of throw on to and, and just kind of listen to start to finish. Um, the other one that I really enjoyed so far in 2021, and, and you turned me on to this way earlier, I think it might have come out in the beginning of the year, um, is the Wild Pink, A Billion Little Lights, yeah. Um, sometimes, you know, with bands, there's just a lot of wilds out there, a lot of wild flags, a lot of wild, there's a lot of you know, different too. bands. What's that? Yeah. There's... And I, I kind of, yeah, exactly. And I, I sort of get sometimes mixed up just with the amount of music. And, and so I may have been turned on to Wild Pink in the past. I don't know that I have, but this album is, is a really good listen. Um, I think Evan 
Rithlinski from Pitchfork described it as a, you know, the, splitting the difference between uh, War on Drugs and Death Cab for Cutie, which is not a bad co- uh, no. combination or bad description, actually. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a great record. Again, it kind of like hits uh, another note um, of, I think, War on Drugs, you know, if you enjoy that type of, of music that's a little bit 70s, but also modern sounding and kind of has like a a vibe to it it's uh you know he's a brooklyn guy and i just i think it's a really right away it's an album again that i I just immediately liked and kind of have continued to play so again came out a little while ago um but it is new this year we just haven't had an opportunity to to kind of talk about it yet and um it's a record that i I definitely highly kind of recommend um as kind of a, a new um, staple in the catalog. And then lastly, <clears throat> I'm just going to throw a shout out to, um, Jasmine Sullivan's Horror's Tales. That is, uh, again, getting a lot of hype and it's just a, a pretty like confident, uh, soul record, you know, really just, you know, talking about, you know, um, sex and love and, uh, power gained through sex and, uh, and it's it's just delivered in a way that again is, is kind of um, new. So you've got Anderson Pack on there. You've got some other guests on there, and uh, I think is an album that that's gonna is getting a lot of praise, but also will will kind of uh, show up at the end of the year as um, one of the better albums of the year. And, and uh, I highly recommend it. It's a good record. I again um, do not am not as familiar with her back catalog, but I think this is her third record. Yeah, um, she's. It's got. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say she's been sort of um, slow rolling a, a, a movement. She's, you know, people are people are really promoting this one. Yeah, and I, think, and I, I want to say I, I want to say on that fateful night that we were watching uh, um, the All Star Game, uh, or was it what was the competition? It was the Golden Globes and the All Star Game at the same time. Yeah, um, yep. I think Jasmine Sullivan performed at the All Star Game. Oh, really? Nice. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, Price Tags with Anderson Pack is a good song. Um, you know, Amanda's Tale, Girl Like Me. It, it's just a, it's a good record and uh, really solid. She also performed on Tiny Desk, which seems to be kind of a breakout these days, uh, a la Lizzo. And uh, I have not watched it, but Nobody will talk uh, the Lizzo you know, performance on Tiny Desk. Concerts. No, nobody does. But I think Tiny Desk has also become just a place for artists to really kind of shine, shine in a minimal, uh, you know, setting. And uh, apparently her performance is quite good. So I'm going to probably... It's the new MTV post recording. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, good, good call. But yeah, that's... Um, those are my kind of picks for right now, and uh, we can jump into our favorite, uh, what are you listening to, or we can uh, take a break and then come back to it. What do you think? No, we can, uh, let's just, um, why don't we just put put some songs on the uh, on the playlist? Playlist? Because that was yeah. our, what are you listening to? <laughs> what are you listening to? <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, uh, go ahead. It's early still, another cup of coffee. Um, give me one second. Do you have one on cue? Because I have one I'm... I'm pretty sure i want to put on i just want to make sure it's on you know what spotify i'm gonna put on song for zula by phosphorescent just to bang yeah, home that can't get song. you on my head nice um i'm gonna put one on that is one of your and my favorites from the late 90s maybe or yeah late 90s i think it was and it's off of the uh grossly underappreciated album um overappreciated in england underappreciated in america I am Shelby Lynn, 
Um, oh yeah, by Shelby Lynn album, and I'm gonna put your lies on. I fucking love. I love that song. That song. It's a it's a banger. It is the uh, uh, dusty Springfield. Yeah, it's the dusty in Memphis of the late '90s, and and I don't understand why people didn't fall for it more. I guess it wasn't country enough for country, and it wasn't. It wasn't country enough for country in America. I think radio had no place for that at the time, and uh, it probably, like I said, it was the second coming of Christ in England. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well, um, let's uh, we'll talk again soon. But yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch "Can't Get You Out of My Head" again. Sounds good. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother 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 podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.